I mentioned to our elders over the weekend that song Amazing Grace, the second verse says, um, Grace taught my heart to fear, and then grace my fears relieved. If you think about this amazing thing, how grace brings us to a realization of our sin, and then immediately provides the answer in Jesus Christ. And uh, what a wonderful song to sing. I would love for you to stand with me, if you're able. I want to read uh, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, We're going to read the whole chapter, although we're only going to be focusing on the first three verses this morning, but at least we'll have a context for the uh, part we're going to look at today. So chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, Paul here has some amazing things to say that really challenge us at the core of who we are and what it means to be a Christian. So here's what he writes. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But we, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Let me pray for us. God, as we begin thinking about and studying through this chapter, I pray that you will help us to understand what it means to love biblically, what that means what that means, how that looks practically. I pray that as we think about love, that we will think beyond just the warm fuzzies that we think about, although that's a part of love, at times at least, but that we would think about love in terms of our actions, uh, a decision we make, a decision of the will. And Father, that we would find all of that grounding, all of that reason for love in the fact that you first loved us. And so help us this morning as we study. Uh, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated this morning. This is probably, if not the most famous, one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. It's probably the most memorable passage that Paul wrote, at least to most people. It's rare if you 
attend a wedding uh, or a Christianized Valentine's party where some mention of 1 Corinthians 13 isn't made. It's often referred to as the love chapter, and rightly so. Only 13 verses long, but nine times in these 13 verses the word love is used. It's the focal point of what Paul is trying to get across to these Corinthians. Now, it's no mistake that 1 Corinthians 13 falls in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And you say, well, yeah, I can count. I understand that. But it's a very specific reason why it's between these two chapters. We studied through chapter 12, and you recall that chapter 12 had to do with the spiritual gifts, uh, what they are, how they're used, uh, their purpose, their interaction with one another. And it's in chapter 12 where we're introduced to the fact that the Corinthians were abusing those gifts, thinking very highly of themselves if they had certain gifts, uh, and looking down their noses at people who had what they considered the lesser gifts. That was chapter 12. In chapter 14, which we'll study after a while, um, focuses in on two of the gifts in particular, tongues and prophecy. And those were two of the gifts that the Corinthians really struggled with because they were a couple of the flashy kind of gifts. They were the speaking gifts that uh, drew a lot of attention. And so Paul is getting ready to correct some of their understanding in relationship to tongues and prophecy. So in between all of the gifts introduced and, and their abuse thereof and the specific ones that Paul has to address in this church... Right in between these two chapters, he sandwiches chapter 13, which is all about love. Why? Because the Corinthians aren't loving each other at all. For the Corinthians, it's all about pride. It's all about one-upping someone else. Love wasn't on their radar screen so much. Now, we, we need to talk about what love is we, got to, we have to define it. At least in our English language, we have, to, we have to define it. Because we use love in a lot of different ways. For example, um, I love my wife. I love my children. I love coffee. I love my car. I love to work out. I love to read. I love to run. I love God. I love to worship. See, we use love all over the place. But you and I, because we are... English-speaking people understand that that word love, when used in different contexts, means different things. I don't love my wife in the same way that I love coffee. I don't love my workout buddy in the same way that I love to read. Okay, We say I love, but you and I understand that when we say that, we might mean different things. And often what we mean when we say love we mean that we have an affection toward or we have a fondness toward something. That's how I would say I love my coffee. Uh, I, I have a fondness or an attraction, a, a, a desire for that, okay? There's also the word love that we can use in our English language in a sexual or erotic way. Uh, that is the most common way that the word love is used in our pop culture, So if you watch uh, a lot of movies or if you listen to music, you're going to hear the word love and it 
often has a sexual connotation to it. It surprises me how many movies you can watch, even if it's a, an action-packed kind of movie. Right somewhere in the middle of that movie, there's going to be uh, this scene where the two main characters um, have this love scene. It amazes me, the music that we hear, uh, how often, uh, right in the middle of what would normally have been a good song, there's this lyric that's thrown in there that brings about this sexualized version of our word love. I just heard a song uh, this week, and uh, one of the phrases says, I know we only met, but let's pretend it's love. Okay? A sense in which love is, is very flimsy, it's very shallow, it's, it's just erotic, it's just sexual, it's just an act. There's no depth there. Okay? That's our English language. We use love in different ways. So we can love things uh, in a, a fond kind of way. We can have an affectionate kind of love. We can have a sexual kind of love. Um, but it's all the same word, love. The Greeks, on the other hand, had different words that meant different things for love. Okay? So uh, in the Greek, for example, in this chapter that we're studying... This word love is the word agape. Different from eros, which was a, an erotic kind of love. Different from phileo, which was a brotherly kind of love. This is agape, love. Now, this word agape wasn't used very often, interestingly enough, in the Greek language. Why not? Well, let me tell you what it means and then see if you can figure out why the Greeks didn't use the word very often. Agape is a word that simply means this. It means the ultimate act of sacrificing oneself for the good of someone else. It's the ultimate act of sacrificing oneself for the good of someone else. Now, knowing what you know about the Corinthians, can you imagine why they didn't like this word? They didn't use it very often because they weren't used to sacrificing themselves for somebody else. They kind of liked the sacrifice to be made for them, but for them to sacrifice for somebody else was little known. It was uncommon, okay? So it's no mistake that Paul brings this word that the Corinthians maybe wish they could forget about, and he brings it right into this letter, into chapter 13, and he says, I want you to know what agape love is all about. To set our point of reference, if you were just off the bat, if you were to give me in your mind what, what is the ultimate example of agape love, what would you say it is? If you are a student of the Bible... And if you're a believer, you would say, well, the ultimate act of agape love was the cross of Jesus Christ. That was the ultimate sacrifice of oneself for the good of someone else, right? The cross of Jesus Christ. He sacrificed his life for whose benefit? Ours, right? You and I. Now, consider this for a minute. Is it easy to love everyone. Is it really easy to love everyone? We, we often say we love everyone, but how easy is it for us to do that? 
It's easy for you and I to love people who give back and who love us back, right? Here in the next two weeks, every rose dealer, every florist is getting ready to make a mint, right? Because every young man, every new husband, uh, every, uh, every boyfriend, I'm trying to protect myself here, I set myself up, goes to the florist, right? And he drops 50 bucks and he sends this bouquet of roses uh, to his wife, to his girlfriend, uh, maybe even to his secret crush, right? Why? Because he loves that person. And if it's a a wife or a girlfriend, uh, he knows that he's getting loved back. It's easy to love people like that. It's easy to spend money on people like that because you feel this almost instant uh, return of love. But how easy is it to love that guy or gal in school, for example, who holds you at arm's length from the group that you want to be in? How easy is it when you got to go through him to be in and he wants you out? How easy is it to love that kind of a person? How easy is it to love a spouse who consistently criticizes or consistently nags you? Is there any part of you that says, yippee, I get to self-sacrifice for that spouse? Or is it a lot easier to say, you know, I think I'll just hang out with the guys tonight instead of go home and deal with that? How easy is it to love that kind of a person? What about uh, that church member Um, who takes every opportunity to tell you and others how badly you botched up the sermon (laughs) and how you're uh, ruining the church. I have to be honest, there are times when when I leave uh, the sanctuary and and I walk out and and I I walk out this aisle and there are times when I just want to keep right on walking and go across the parking lot and, and go pull the covers over my head. Why? Because it's easier to do that than it is to face that person who's ready to criticize, who's ready to uh, point out your errors, right? Here's the reality. We say we love. Let's not fool ourselves. It's very, very hard. And we fail often, don't we? We gravitate toward those who are easy to love and we tend to avoid those who make us bristle, right? Now, here's what's so amazing about God's agape, the cross of Christ. You and I were the people that should have made God bristle. You and I were the people that God should have looked at and said, they're always critical, they're always nagging, they're, they're never appreciating me, they're always taking advantage of all the good gifts I give them. It would have been easy for God to say, I'm just going to go back to my bedroom and pull the covers over my head and be done with them. What does God do? He comes toward those people and he says, I'm going to send my son in there to those people who are unlovable, To those people who look at me and say, get out of my face, God, I'm going to send my son in there. I want you to think about the gravity of that decision of God to move toward you instead of moving away. Would you give up 
your most valued treasure, even a child, to somebody who drove you bonkers. That's what God did. That's what he did. That God would choose to love those who rebelled against him is nothing short of amazing. That's why we sing the song, Amazing Grace. It is amazing. And instead of punishing us for the attitudes we've had toward him, he loved us. And he put that punishment on his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died for you and I. We believe in him. We trust him. We repent of our sins and we're saved. We confess him as our Lord and master, right? And we follow him. And now we begin to learn like he loved. We're not always going to get it right. We're going to fail. But even when we fail, it's his grace that comes in that sustains us. It's his grace that reminds us you're a child of the king. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that says, Sean, you were unlovable. I loved you. And when you fail, remember, I still love you. Now get up, repent, and go love again. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ paid the penalty so that you and I could love. It was a decision of God. That's agape. It's an act of the will. It's a decision. It's not a feeling. There are times when I don't feel like loving my wife. But I do because it's an act. There are times when I don't feel like getting up and going to work in the morning. But I do because it's a decision I make. Love is a decision. It's something I do. That's agape. And that's what Paul wants his readers to understand here. Agape is more than a feeling. It's an intentional choice to move toward those who may or may not be lovable. A couple big picture things, and then we'll, di- we'll dig into the text. If you look at verses 1 through 3, this is where we're going to be uh, kind of landing this morning. Paul uses the personal pronoun I all through these three verses. If I did this, if I had this, if I were this, that is very purposeful. Paul used the word I to soften the blow. <laughs> that he's getting ready to give the Corinthians. Paul could have came in and rightly used the second pronoun, you. And he could have said, you don't love very well. You aren't getting this. You don't understand agape. You've got problems. And if he would have done that, the people would have bristled at him, right? Because you know what it's like when somebody comes in and they've got the finger going and it's you, 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 you. So Paul, in an effort to soften the blow, he switches the pronouns and he uses the word I. He includes himself. If I were this, if I had this. And it's a sense in which he is relating to the Corinthians in a way that he's trying to bring down the walls so that they'll hear him. It's a good lesson for you and I. When we approach people, it's a, good, it's a lesson that, that I'm learning that to tone it down, use the word I, be inclusive. This is what Paul is doing here as he's addressing the Corinthians. So that's the first thing we've got to understand. He's using that personal pronoun, I. The second thing we've got to know when Paul writes these first three verses is he's using a figure of speech in these three verses called hyperbole. You ever heard of hyperbole? 
Hyperbole is the intentional exaggeration of a statement in order to make a point. He's intentionally stretching something beyond the believable just to make a point. Some of you in this room have used hyperbole and not even realized that you've used it. Some of you may have said something like this. Dad, everybody has a smartphone. I need one, right? That is hyperbole. You have stretched the truth. You have exaggerated the truth because not everyone has a smartphone, but you've exaggerated it in order to make a point, right? The point is, I think I need one. And because everyone else has one, I should get one. That is hyperbole. Paul uses hyperbole in each of these three verses in order to make his point, in order to drive it home, okay? So, we know what agape is. Uh, We're using first person pronouns, and there's hyperbole. Bring all those together. Now let's dig in and see what what Paul has to say here, okay? Three things we're going to look at this morning about love. These are in your message notes. Three things. The first one is this. There must be love in what I say. There must be love in what I say. Look at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You will notice as we go through these first three verses that Paul is going to be picking on specific spiritual gifts that the Corinthians struggled with. It's his whole point from chapters 12 through 14. So what is the first spiritual gift that Paul pulls out here in verse 1? It's the gift of tongues, right? So Paul says this. Paul says, uh, and just a reminder, tongues was that supernatural gift that God gave certain men and women to speak in a foreign language, a known, uh, and a foreign language that was known, but previously unknown to the speaker. So the speaker didn't know what he was saying, but it was a known language. The gift of tongue was given to advance the gospel, specifically in the early days of the church, to groups that needed to hear the gospel in their own native language. As people heard the gospel being preached, they heard it in their own language and they could understand it and believe it. So that was the gift of tongues. The Corinthians that had that gift were very, very proud of it, were very enthused by the fact that they could speak in languages uh, that they didn't know. And so they made a big, a big show of it. Uh, in fact, in chapter 14, Paul comes along later and we'll study this and he says this about the gift of tongues. He says, if any speak in a tongue... Uh, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let somebody interpret. Now, if you read between the lines, you can kind of figure out what was happening in that church. Apparently, there were more than two or three speaking at the same time with no interpretation going on. It was a bit chaotic in that church if you would have walked in. Someone talking over here, someone over here, someone interrupting in the middle of that. Uh, No one was edified. Uh, no, one was under, no one understood what was being said. It was all uh, being spoken with no interpretation. And Paul says, if an unbeliever walks into that kind of a mess, they're going to think you're crazy. They're going to walk right back out. They don't have anything to do with that. That just is weird. It's just, it's just noisy and, and loud in there. So Paul, when he's talking about love, here in verse 1, he starts with this gift of tongues, something that they're struggling with. And right here in verse 1, 
he uses hyperbole. And he says this, if I speak in the tongues of men, and that's what we've been studying about, and here's the hyperbole, and even if I speak in the tongue of angels, but have not love. Okay? Now, Paul's point is this. Uh, If I could speak in the highest tongue possible, in angelic tongues, in languages known only by the host of angels, which, by the way, he has heard this once. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he was caught up into heaven, and it says this, it says, while he was there, he says, I was caught up into heaven, and I heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Paul heard angelic speech. We don't know what it was like. He didn't, he didn't tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but he said, even if I could speak like that in a normal course of church activity, and I, I, was, I just blew you away by how amazing I could talk and by the wonderful things that I could say. If I said all of that and I didn't have love, Paul says, I'm nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I've oftentimes felt sorry for people, uh, for parents of people like Dylan and Eldon and Chris (laughs) who had to listen to them practicing the drums. Um, I can only imagine that there were times when they wanted to say, enough, right? No more, That, that sound. This is one of the reasons why I think those little xylophones for children should be illegal because it never fails. They get that little hammer and they pick that green one and it's just ding, 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 ding. And after a while, you're just like, enough, right? Um, Those are the gifts that disappear when the kids go to bed and and no one knows uh, where the fairy took them, right? Why? Because it's annoying. It just grates on you after a while. That just, that clunkiness of that sound, that that gong, that banging sort of noise. It's Paul's point. Paul said, if I could speak in the tongues of men, or if I could speak in the tongues of angels, if I didn't do it with an attitude of love, with an attitude of, I want to build you up, I want to edify this body, if I just did it so you could look at me and be amazed... You know what that sounds like to everybody else? Ding, 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 ding. It's a noisy gong. It's sobering. I can be the best preacher and have the most eloquent sermons and speak the most powerful truth. But if my motive is not to speak with love, then I'm a zero. I'm a nothing, according to this verse. If my motive is just to tell you how it is, if my motive is just to let you have it, I'm a zero. I'm nothing, Paul says. You can say all the right things to your spouse. You can give all of the best advice to your children. You might have the most wonderful ideas at work. You might have the best and right opinions at the church business meeting. But in any of those settings, if what you say isn't said with love, Paul says you have nothing. You have nothing. Zero.
Agape speech, Paul says, is that speech that says, I love you and I want the best for you. And so what I'm getting ready to say uh, is meant to build you up. And sometimes, sometimes that means that I withhold my opinion if that would be the best thing for you. This is very personal for me. I don't know if it's personal for you. But if somebody were to ask those closest to you, how's so-and-so in his love in what he says to you? How would they answer? How would they evaluate you? Your love should cause your speech to have an eternal effect, a a building-up effect, not just a, a flash of a gong. Paul says, that's love in what you say. Secondly, he says, you must love in what you believe. You must love in what you believe. Look at verse 2. He says, and if I have prophetic powers, there's the gift he's addressing early on, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. Now, by now, you should know what prophetic powers are. We've talked about this uh, for a few weeks. That was the gift of prophecy that was given to the early church. It was direct revelation given by God uh, to be given to the local congregation to build them up, to thus saith the Lord. Here's what God would have for you. That's prophecy. Now, notice the hyperbole that Paul brings in right there at the beginning of verse 2. If I have prophetic powers, and he did, He was an apostle. And here's the hyperbole. Here's the stretching, the exaggeration. And if I understood all mysteries, and if I had all knowledge, now, that is an exaggeration. Why? Because you and I can't have all knowledge. You and I can't know all mysteries. If we did, we would be God. Only God knows all things, right? Only God is omniscient. God is God and I am not. And part of the reason why I'm not God is because I don't know everything that God knows. So Paul's point is this. Even if I knew everything, even if I believed all the right things and I had massive amounts of knowledge and I understood all of the intricacies of of the Old Testament and the New Testament and this person of Christ, if I didn't hold that knowledge and share that knowledge with love, then again, I become a zero, worth nothing. Friend, you can be the most intellectual, you can be the most scholarly, you can be the smartest person in the things of the Bible, but if that knowledge of the Bible comes off to others with an air of arrogance, then you might as well call it quits. Because nobody likes to be around a person um, who's constantly pointing out the error in their belief system or in their thinking. There's a time for that. But when it's this constant sort of drilling away and the, with an attitude of, I'm going to win this argument. You're not going to get me on this one. I'm smarter than you on this one. Here's what the Bible has, says about this. If there's no love and there's no concern uh, for the other person's uh, 
being in Christ and a desire to see that person grow, then that knowledge that you possess, it becomes a weapon. It becomes a weapon to tear others down. I have work to do here. There are times when I've done that. I'm just out to win an argument. I'll show you how much I know. And there are times when that's happened. And that's shameful. Because Paul says, that's not love. That's nothing. You're nothing if you do that. Sometimes, for you and I, it just feels good, doesn't it? It just feels good to say, you're wrong and here's why. No humility. No seeking the good in that person. No desire to see that person grow in Christ-likeness. Just as desire to chop him off at the knees and let him know that you know more. And you know what? That person is never going to come back to you and be like, oh, holy and wonderful, magnificent power you are. Tell me, grace me with another morsel of your truth. No. What are they going to do? They're going to walk away feeling betrayed feeling unloved, feeling worthless, feeling uncared for. Paul says, even if you know all that, you got to exercise that with love. And he says, even if you have all the faith in the world, in fact, you have so much faith that you could move mountains. There's the hyperbole, right? The hyperbole uh, is moving mountains. Paul doesn't really expect anyone to move mountains. In fact, I don't think he really wants anyone to move mountains. That would really mess things up, right? If you had people of faith and this one was sort of dumping the mountain in the ocean and this one was moving this mountain over here, Google Maps would be all messed up. Paul's point is not, I want you to have so much faith that you can move mountains. Paul's point is this, even if you had that much faith, if you didn't exercise it with love, Paul says you could move mountains and people would be amazed, but it would amount to nothing for you. Zero. You would gain nothing. So love has to be present in what we say, how we interact with those around us. Love has to be present in what we believe and how we present that belief system and how we love others as even as we seek to train them and teach them and grow them. The last thing that Paul says here is love must be in what I do. In what I do. This is in verse 3. He says, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now when Paul says, If I give away all I have, that word give away there is a simple word that means to dole something out piece by piece. It's different from the command that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler when when Jesus told him, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. That was kind of, that command to that rich young ruler was sort of a do it all at once. Sell everything you have and give it away. This, in 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul says, if I would give away all I have, it's a piece by piece giving away. And the implication is this. I'm giving it away so that people notice. So that I get a little bit of praise. Get a little bit of praise. Every time I give it away, people see me giving it away. So Paul says, even if I give away all that I have, even if I dole it out bit by bit, if it is for a self-promoting reason, then I gain nothing. I gain nothing. Love 
is self-sacrifice, but not all self-sacrifice is love. Love is self-sacrifice. I do give it away. But not all self-sacrifice is love because I can do it in a self-centered way with a motive that says, look at me. If you and I give away what we have out of show or if we give away what we have out of obligation or if we give away what we have because we feel guilty if we don't, all of those are the wrong reasons. God says, I want you to give because you love. When that offering plate came around through the pews this morning, if you put your money in there and you held it real high as you put it down in the plate, that's not love. Or if you put your money in there and you said, well, if I don't put my money in here, I'll probably have a flat tire this week. Okay? It's not love. Love says, God gave so much to me. Of course I want to love him back. It's a decision that says, I want to show my love for him who gave all for me. So Paul says, if that's not how you give, you're not giving for the right reasons. And Paul uses hyperbole again. He says, even if you were to give the greatest thing you can think of, your own body, even if you would put your own body on the stake and say, I'll I'll even give up my body and let my body be burned. If you're not doing that out of love for the body of Christ, then you gain nothing. And by the way, we know that's hyperbole because Christians weren't being burned at the stake yet when Paul wrote this. Later they were. But when Paul wrote this, this would have been an exaggeration. Okay? Even if I give up my body to be burned, if I don't do it out of love for the body of Christ... I gain nothing. I'm a zero, zilch, nada. That's Paul's point. Plain and simple. Even martyrdom is of no spiritual benefit if not done for the love of Christ. So here's my challenge. Kind of end with this. Here's my challenge for you this week. In what way and to whom do you need to show love? True self-sacrificing, humble love. And if there's one person that's coming to your mind right now that you say, well, it's not him, then it's probably him. Okay? Who is it that you need to show love to? Let me give you some ideas, help you think. Maybe it is your spouse. Maybe the speech toward your spouse, your husband or your wife, needs to change. You say all the right things, but the tone in which you say them just grates against that person. Maybe if you're a child here today, maybe your love needs to change toward your sibling, your brother or sister. I can't stand him. He's always in my way. She drives me nuts, right? Maybe God's calling you to love, make a decision to love in a new way. If you're a student, here today. What about that person at school who would sooner stuff you in your locker than treat you with any kind of dignity? How are you going to love that person? What about you as an employee? Are you a clanging symbol at work? Are you a noisy gong? 
Do people look at you and say, ah, roll the eyes, here he comes again. Get ready. Do you need to be more loving at work? And ultimately, do you need to love Christ? That's the biggest question. Maybe you're here today and you say, I don't, I can try to do those things, but if there's no love of Christ to ground that, to, to cause that to have real truth behind it, then even feeble attempts might make you a nicer sinner, but it's not going to change anything eternally. And friends, there are times when you and I, even as believers, make up our minds to exhibit agape love, make a decision to be intentional about our love when we fail. I want to remind you of the gospel. It says, God loved you. God saved you. And yes, you fail. It doesn't mean you give up. It doesn't mean you say this Christian life is for naught. It says, I repent and I seek to change and grow. And so maybe I spoke to my wife wrong. I go back and I seek her forgiveness. And the next time that rolls around, the words are getting ready to roll off my tongue. And I remember, wait a minute, this isn't agape. And I change and I grow. The gospel says, my grace will sustain you even when you fall. You get up and now you persevere. You keep going because I loved you. The cross of Christ is still here for you. Friends, life minus love equals zero. Life minus love equals zero. That's why Mike read what he did earlier this morning out of Revelation chapter 2. And I just want to pick out a couple things out of there and and close with this. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus was speaking to the church at Ephesus. And listen again what he told them. He said, I know your works... I know your toil and your patient endurance and you, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you've tested those who called themselves apostles and are not. And you found out the false ones, okay? I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. You get the picture? The church in Ephesus, they were working hard. They were weighing out who's a true apostle, who's not. They had right doctrine, They were weighing good from bad. They were enduring. They were being patient. Then Jesus says this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And you know what Jesus did? He removed the candlestick, and the church was dead, and no church has ever existed in Ephesus since then because they lost their love. They had everything else right, but they lost their love. You and I and Providence Church can be, can be in the same situation if we lose our love. Let's strive for a heart of Christ that says, I love because he first loved me, and I choose to love that which is maybe unlovable because such was I. Let's pray. God, you have challenged my heart this week as I study these verses. And I find myself receiving the same gentle rebuke that you gave the Corinthians. Because there are times when my speech is less than gracious. There are times when 
I can take my belief system and use it as a weapon. There are times when I don't love others in ways that would exemplify how you loved me. Father, I'm thankful that you've forgiven me for that. I'm thankful that you've placed the punishment for that on the back of your son, Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful for your grace. And it's because of that grace that I want to change and I want to grow. I want to be different. I want to love with agape love. I want to see people around me like you see people around me. I want my heart to break for those things that break your heart. I pray that as I interact with people in this church, people at Walmart, people in my home, people in my family, I pray that I would be consistently reminded that the gospel message is one of pure, unadulterated, sacrificial, self-humbling love. Father, I pray each one of us would get that. And if there, aren't, if there are those here this morning that have never considered the grace of Christ in their life, I pray that today they would repent. Today their eyes would be opened and they would see that uh, attempts at love outside of gospel truth is nothing more than platitudes of um, hospitality, of benevolence, but real love, real love takes the love of Christ that flows in us and through us and pushes it out to others. Help us to know that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.